Good morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there is room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. Good morning to those in the field. Good morning to those worshiping online. So fun to be worshiping together this Sunday morning. As Hollins pointed out, we are going to receive communion at the end of the sermon today. And so in the field, we've distributed the elements out. If you're at home, we tried to warn you uh, about this throughout the week. If you did not get that, those correspondences, though, you can go and, and go in your pantry, find some piece of bread, some wine or juice, and you'll have your elements ready as well for the end of the sermon. Communion is a great opportunity uh, for Christians. Uh, in the act of communion, Christians demonstrate our dependence upon Jesus Christ, both in life and in death. We demonstrate our dependence upon Jesus Christ. Communion is also an opportunity for Christians to be reminded of the sacrificial love of Jesus and actually to be strengthened by the sacrificial love of Jesus. So it's a beautiful thing that we'll participate in together. If you are part of our church family, but you're not a Christian, you're still investigating who Jesus is, communion is a rich time not for you to receive, but for you to sit, to think, to contemplate where you are in your relationship with Christ and what a next step for you might look like. And of course, for those of us who are sort of at the line, the starting line, we're ready to step over into the line of faith. Communion is a beautiful opportunity to receive for the first time, and in doing so, demonstrate that you have come to depend upon Jesus, to reconcile you to God, and to give you life everlasting, abundant life on earth, everlasting life after earth. Because we'll end the service sermon with communion today, I won't get a chance to remind you about prayers and giving, so I'll just say we'd love to pray for you, and if you have a prayer request, we would love to know what it is. In the field, there are wicker baskets on your way in and out. You can put prayer requests and any tithes or offerings in those. If you are at home online, you can send your prayer request to davidsonprayer at lakeforest.org. And with any gifts or contributions, those can go to lakeforest.org slash give. Thank you to all of you for your continued generous giving to the church that lets us stay on mission together, even in a strange time. And it is a strange time. It would be hard to overstate the disruption of the past six months. It would be hard to overstate the opportunity that you and I have as individuals and as God's people, the opportunity we have to not have to go back to normal, whatever that was, but that in fact you and I have the opportunity to move something forward into something better, something more like what God wants for us. You and I have the opportunity to rebuild a more Jesus Christ-centered life. That's been the theme of our series of sermons called Rebuilding. How can we take a disruption and make it an opportunity to rebuild a more Jesus Christ-centered life? Today we want to wrap up that series, uh, that rebuilding series, with the final sermon. The theme verse of our series has been Nehemiah 2.18, which says, They replied, Let us start rebuilding. And so they began this good work. The good work of turning a huge disruption into a huge opportunity. The good work of rebuilding a more Jesus Christ-centered life. 
We've been looking at accounts from the life of Jesus where Jesus encountered a person and helped them rebuild their life into something new, something more like what God wanted. All the encounters that we've been preaching on where Jesus interacted with these people are from the book of the Bible called John. So in this series, we've been asking everybody at Lake Forest Davidson to read the book of the Bible called John. If you have not yet gotten to finish the book of the Bible called John, the series officially ends at midnight tonight. So you have time. Get reading. You can do it. You can do it. Our passage for this morning is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11, what Kennedy read for us earlier. Sometimes I get asked the question, and sometimes I've asked the question, maybe you've asked the question, or you've been asked this question, that one more person in your life who trusts you to, to teach them what God is like, maybe they've asked you this question. The question is, if God is really there, why doesn't he write it in the stars? If God is really there, why doesn't he write it in the stars? Like, line the stars to say, hey guys, it's me, God. I think that's a reasonable question. I think it's a good question. And then I've thought about it more and more, and I've started to think about it from God's perspective, and that's made me think about it a little bit differently. I sort of imagine God saying, wait a minute, you, you know I put the stars up there in the first place, right? You know I made the night sky beautiful. I, I'm here, and I think the stars already spell that out. You, you want them to literally spell a word now? Now, I'm not sure God would be this sarcastic, and I'm not sure he would say the word literally. But the point would be, if God did write something in the stars, like actually wrote a physical word in the stars, a thousand years from now, wouldn't everyone sort of be used to that's what the stars spelled? And they might say, gosh, it would just be so much easier to believe in God if it were a different word. Or maybe like a whole phrase or a sentence, like one word could be a coincidence. It would be easier if there was more writing in the sky. The poet, the theologian G.K. Chesterton captured the point this way. He wrote that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon. But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. I'll read it again. When we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon. But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door. With time, we can become accustomed to the wonder of the world. With, over time, the wonder of the world can stop amazing us. And the point is that something similar can happen with God. Over time, or because of our personality, or because of our upbringing, we can become deadened to the wonders of God. We can become deadened to the works of God. We can start to miss what's right in front of our faces. And in fact, that's what the passage this morning is about. It's about people who are missing what's right in front of their faces. And it's the religious leaders. In the passage, Jesus heals a blind man, which we're going to talk about in a minute. 
And then the religious leaders get very upset that Jesus did this on the Sabbath, the day of rest, to rest from our work, to worship God. And so the religious leaders go find the no longer blind man. They start quizzing him about all this. They all go find Jesus, and they start quizzing Jesus about all this. And then Jesus sums it up by saying, well, it seems to me that the blind see, and those who see prove they are blind. The blind see, and those who are see prove they are blind. This is what in theological circles would be called a Jesus mic drop. John chapter 9 seems to be about Jesus healing a man of physical blindness, but it is really about Jesus exposing the spiritual blindness of the religious leaders. Jesus is exposing how they and maybe how you and maybe how I can miss what's right in front of us, how we can become deadened to the work and the wonder of God. So that's the backdrop. Let's start to walk through the passage from this morning. John chapter 9, verse 1 says this, As they went along, as he went along, Jesus, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? We always need somebody to blame. So this man is blind. Someone must have done something wrong. When there's always someone to blame, it lets me feel a little more in control. Like, if I do everything right, nothing bad is going to happen to me. How's that working out for you? Verse 3, Jesus responds, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. But Jesus, we need someone to blame. There's not always someone to blame. Jesus says, instead of that, open your eyes, watch. You're about to see the work of God. You're about to see God's power. You're about to see God's power on full display. Well, actually, he doesn't say full display. He says, you're about to see the power of God on display. You and I could not grasp the power of God on full display. That would be like asking frogs to do calculus. It's just not going to work. But we can grasp the power of God. Even if we can't grasp the power of God on full display, we can grasp the power of God. God's infinite power can get shrunk down into a smaller picture, a smaller example that lets us grasp it. This is what growing up I was always told was called an object lesson. That you can take some object and, and show some deeper meaning out of that small object. Jesus is about to show us an object lesson. He's about to enliven us again to the wonder of God, to the work of God. Like any good object lesson, he's going to take a big truth, a big reality, and boil it down into a bite-sized chunk. I love object lessons in part because when I was young, before the sermon at the church where I grew up, the pastor would always do an object lesson. You know, like he'd have a scarf and say, this scarf was woven together just like how God is weaving his family together or something like that. But this was no ordinary object lesson because on Sunday, the pastor would give one of us kids uh, he'd always call the kids up for the, the, the object lesson right before the sermon. On Sunday, he'd give one of us kids a box. And we would go home, 
and pick an item from our house and put it in the box and close the lid. And then on Sunday, we would show up at church. The pastor would open the box, pull the item out, and then teach us something about God based on whatever item we had put in that box. This went on for years. I was so impressed by this. I thought we must have the smartest pastor in the world that he can just open the box, pull something out, and teach us something about God based on the item in the box. It was amazing. I found out years later, our parents called him during the week to tell him what we had put in the box. I'm amazed I even want to be part of a church. Verse 4, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In December, I actually did a whole sermon on that statement. I am the light of the world. It's a reference to God appearing as a pillar of fire to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. So I'm not going to repeat the whole sermon now. It's on our website. But Jesus is saying he's about to show us an object lesson that's going to reinforce to us that he is the light of the world. He is about to let us see the works of God on display. He is going to light up some darkness as a reminder. He is the light of the world. Verse 6. After saying this, Jesus spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. This verse brought to you by Major League Baseball. So we know that Jesus can heal people with a touch. There's examples of that in the Bible. We know that Jesus can heal people with words. There's examples of that in the Bible. But why on earth does Jesus spit in the dirt, make some mud, and put it on the man's eyelids? We don't know. We don't 100% know why he does that. It may have had a very special significance that only this man and Jesus knew about. Or honestly, it may have given a, a reason for him to have something to wash off. Because that's what Jesus says next. It's not Jesus' spit that heals the man's vision. Pay very careful attention to this verse. Jesus told him, go, this is verse 7, go, Jesus told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. So the man born blind is healed, but when did the actual healing happen? When he went and washed in the pool. Did this man ask to be healed? There are people in the Bible who ask to be healed. Did this man ask to be healed? No. He did not ask to be healed. So who's taking the initiative throughout this whole passage? It's Jesus. Now the man acts, the man has to go wash in the pool, but his response is, is just that, a response to Jesus' initiative. Jesus is the great initiative taker here. Jesus walks up to a man born blind, spits in the ground, makes some mud, puts the mud on the man's eyes, and then Jesus says, go wash in the pool. Jesus does not tell him he'll be healed if he does. 
Jesus just tells him to go wash in the pool. He does not even offer his disciples to help the man get to the pool. I mean, you have to understand how seemingly arbitrary this must have been to this man. He walks up, spits, makes the mud, puts it on his eyes, says, go wash in the pool. And yet the man trusted the words of Jesus. The man trusted the heart behind what Jesus was saying. The man trusted Jesus' character. He went and washed and went home seeing. This is the work of God on display, that Jesus can heal our blindness. He can heal, most importantly, our spiritual blindness, but he may do it in very unconventional ways. He may not spell out the whole thing for us. He may just give it to us one step at a time so that we have to learn to trust him, so that we have to learn to trust his words, so that we have to learn to trust his heart that's behind the words, so that we have to learn to trust his character. In other words, so that we have to learn to trust Jesus. Now, Jesus did not tell the man, well, just come to me when you're ready. Jesus doesn't tell us to just come to him when we're ready. The point is, Jesus is the great initiative taker. Jesus has already shown up. Jesus has already done the work. Now, you and I have to respond, but we are responding to what Jesus has already done. He is the initiator of every encounter with him. It's up to us how we respond. So how do people respond to the healing of the man born blind? Verse 8, his neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging ask, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. This passage is ultimately about spiritual blindness. This passage is ultimately about how you and I can become deadened to the wonders of God. We can become deadened to the works of God. How you and I can miss what's right in front of our faces. Jesus has just healed a man. He has just healed this man born blind. And some people are amazed and astonished and are praising God. And other people are squinting, doing this little number, saying, I don't even think it's the same guy. I am often in that second group. Perhaps you are often in that second group. The blind see, and yet we are blinded to the wonders of God. We are blinded to the works of God. But it does not have to be that way, because Jesus can open up the eyes of the blind. He's the light of the world. John chapter 1, verse 9 says this about Jesus, that the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Jesus is the true light that gives light to everyone, and he was coming into the world. This passage is describing Jesus as something other than just a regular old person. 
that Jesus is God and in fact was sent from God to fulfill the longings of our souls. He, he is the true light coming into the world. He is God wrapped up in humanity, fully God and fully human. He's an object lesson to show us what God is truly like. The limitless God was contained in the limits of this world, but not tainted by them. The limitless God was contained in the limits of this world, but not tainted by them. That's who Jesus is. And what do we learn about God when we look at Jesus? Well, we learn all kinds of things. But in our passage today, what we learn is that God is not removed. God is not watching us from a safe distance. In fact, God has come close. God has come, some, come so close, in fact, that he spit in this dust. That he made mud. That he wiped them over human eyelids. God has come close. And God has come that close so that you and I might be healed. So that you and I might be made new. Made new to the point that some people will look at us and may not even believe we're the same person anymore. Jesus shows us that God has come close. In fact, God came so close to our world that he got nailed to it. So close to our world, he got nailed to it. The blood from his hands and from his feet falling into the dust, making puddles of mud at the foot of the cross. We can become accustomed to the symbolism of the cross and deadened to the sacrificial love of Jesus that made him willing to die there, willing that you and I could be set free. If only Jesus would reach down into that mud and place it over our eyes, and send us out to do his work, maybe then again we would see the wonders of God. Maybe then again we would see the work of God. Maybe we could see again the hundreds of reminders in our lives that God is so generous to us. Maybe we could see or see again the hundreds of reminders that God carefully watches out for us. Maybe we would see or see for the very first time God has made an abundant provision. At 9.15 I said provundant abision, but it was abundant provision for us through Jesus Christ. God has made abundant provision for you, for me, through Jesus Christ, through his life, through his suffering, through his death, and never forget this part, through his resurrection God has made abundant provision through Jesus Christ. You and I are invited to live, live forever, free and forgiven. And then, like Jesus told the man born blind, Jesus can turn our lives into an object lesson. Jesus can turn our lives into an object lesson that says, look at God's power to change people's lives. It's one thing to go up to somebody and say, hey, God can make you new. Jesus makes people new. Okay, that's nice. That's interesting. What does that mean? It's a different thing for your life or my life to be the object lesson. Oh, that's what you mean that Jesus makes people new. I see it in your life. I see what you mean that Jesus molds people and shapes people into someone better into someone more redemptive because I see it happening in your life. 
Sometimes, honestly, it's hard to believe you're the same person. Your life, my life, can become an object lesson about who God is and how he changed people's lives. Now, the truth is all of our stories are different, and the methods God might use in our lives are very unique to who we are, just like the method Jesus used for the man born blind. Our, fam- our church family is full of amazing God stories. By God's grace, we believe the best is yet to come. But the headline is always the same. The blind see, the dead are alive. Those who are deadened to God's work and wonder will again see them. Those who have become blind to the goodness of God will see his goodness on full display, in, at least on display, one day on full display, but right now just on display in this world or in our lives or in the lives of people we know and love. We will again look at the colors of the sunrise, or if you're more like me, the colors of the sunset. We will look at the intricacies of creation and they will assure us or assure us once again that we are not an accident. We will look at the actions and the words of Jesus, specifically his death and resurrection most of all. They will assure us that we don't have to wonder what God is like, that God is close, that God's arms are open wide, that God is ready to welcome us home. God is ready to transform us from the inside out. It's just fascinating. Jesus initiated, walked up to a man, spit in, the, spit in the earth, made some mud, put it on his eyes, told him to go and wash in a pool, a pool called scent. He does something very similar for each of us. He initiates, asks us to trust him, not totally knowing what the next steps are all going to look like. And then he sends us to go and live lives that point people to him, to go and live lives that say, look at what Jesus can do to change lives. And some people are amazed by it, and some people are very jaded to it. And we don't knock people who are very jaded to it, because the truth is many of us are very jaded to it, or we were very jaded to it, or we may yet one day be very jaded to it. But I pray like like this passage today, we we rely on Jesus, who is the light of the world, to light up the darkness in our souls and to once again be in awe of the work and the wonder of God. So the the question I'd like you to reflect on before I wrap up and lead us into communion would be, how have you and I become deadened to the wonders and work of God? How have you and I become deadened to the wonders and work of God? How have you, how have I missed out on the wonders and the work of God in our world, in your life, in my life, in the lives of people we know, the lives of people we love? Have the last months deadened us to the work and wonder of God? Are we missing what's right in front of our faces? And will we be humble enough to respond to Jesus' initiative that it does not have to be this way? We all face a choice. 
if we will focus more on who's to blame for the condition of our lives, or if we will focus more on what Jesus is doing in this moment and moving forward. Will we choose to focus on who's to blame for the condition of our lives or on what Jesus is doing in this moment and moving forward so that the works of God might be displayed in each of us? As we head to a time of communion, join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever he's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Give you an opportunity to just unfold your life before God and to be honest about the ways that you were like the man born blind, in need of healing needing to trust Jesus' words and the heart behind them. To open up your life and to be honest about the ways you are like the religious leaders. That you and I have grown blind to the works, the wonders of God. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, as we come now to the moment of communion, we realize that we are faced with a choice. On whom shall our lives depend? In this life, and even as one day we head into death and the life everlasting, on whom shall our lives depend? Shall we depend upon ourselves? Shall we depend upon what we've achieved? Will we listen to the voices in our head of, from years past? Your invitation is to come and depend on you. Lord, I'm aware I need forgiveness I can't give myself, purpose I can't give myself, security I can't give myself. And so I come to this moment, and I pray others come to this moment, dependent on you. Needing to be reminded of your sacrificial love, and needing to be strengthened by your sacrificial love so that I too might be sent to see and proclaim the wonder of God. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.
Well, the Lord Jesus passed it along to his disciples, who passed it along to the Apostle Paul, who passed it along to us, that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen and amen. Let's worship together.